Welcome to Leonard Lopez at Large. I'm Leonard Lopez, and I'm hearing myself in the studio as well as in my headphones. Okay, uh, Hilma of Klint was the first artist to create abstract paintings in, in 1906, years before the acknowledged pioneers like Vasily Kandinsky and Piet Mondrian. But it was only a few years ago that her work began to be recognized for the truly groundbreaking achievement that it was. A major exhibition of her paintings at the Guggenheim last year was a New York Times critic's pick. And now, a new documentary film called Beyond the Visible, Hilma Afton, tells her story and also examines the way the art world marginalized her and many other female artists. The film is opening this coming Friday in a virtual theatrical release through BAM, and I'm very pleased that it has brought its director, Halina to our show, along with art historian Julia Voss, who appears in the film and also contributed to the catalog of the Guggenheim show. Welcome. Yes, hello. Hello, <laughs> hello from Berlin. <laughs> Helena, isn't this your yeah. directorial debut? Why did you choose to make a documentary about Hilma Clint as your first film? Um, well... <laughs> Well, it's my debut, but um, I probably didn't choose it. Probably it chose me. I don't know. Uh, the thing is, you're working sometimes on more than one project as a film director, and this happens to be the first <laughs> that uh -huh. was finished first, let's say, like that. Well, when you, when you first saw her work, did you immediately know that you wanted to make a film about her? Yeah. The, the moment I, I stood in the... Um, in the exhibition here in Berlin, that's um, more than five years ago now, um, I stood there in front of the ten largest, and everybody who has ever encountered those paintings, they are three and three meters sixty high, and you have mm -hmm. more than you know twenty five meters of uh, painting around you. Uh, it made me so speechless and. Then I got a little bit angry because I couldn't understand why n nobody ever talked about me, about the, the, these paintings. And, yeah, I think it was exactly there where I thought I have to make a film about that. Uh, Julia, you're an art historian. When did the work of Hilma first come to your attention? Actually, that was in 2008, because back then I was working as the art critic of the German national newspaper called Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung. It's a big national newspaper. And I was in Stockholm for another project, and I came across Hilma Afkin's, one of Hilma Afkin's paintings in the Moderna Museum, which is the big uh, museum of modern art in Stockholm. And they had one of her paintings on loan. And the curator back then, Joris Müller-Westermann, who also did the big show in 2000, 2013, showed me this painting. And, it, and like Halina, I was absolutely, on the one hand, I was absolutely overwhelmed with joy and, uh, and by the beauty of the painting. And on the other hand, um, a little bit later, anger kicked in because I realized <laughs> that although I had studied art history and I had spent you know, years as an art critic at the Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung, I hadn't come across her. So th these were the two sort of big emotions that Hilma uh, sure. Clint released to me when I well, encountered her. They are very impressive paintings, very sophisticated, surprisingly, uh, for a first artist doing something like that. Now, uh, she died in 1944, the same year as Kandinsky and Mondrian, mm -hmm. but her work yeah. uh, ha hasn't been well known until just recently. 
what happened? There were other famous uh, women artists uh, during her lifetime. Uh, why was she the one who just disappeared? Mm, yeah, well, <laughs> I don't think she has disappeared. And I think this is the reason why we felt so angry, um, Julia and me. And it's... Um, she hasn't disappeared. Art historians knew about her. It's not true that nobody ever heard about her. There had been little exhibitions, especially in the, in the North European countries and in, in Sweden, some. And it was in 1986. Um, Julia, you'll have to correct me if this is wrong or something. But um, <laughs> there was this first show in, in, in Los Angeles. Um, so 1986. So the art world was absolutely aware of that. So any curator, I mean, nobody can tell that he has not heard of her probably before. So, oh, but, and well, that but that was 1986. She died in 1944. And I remember when I yeah. studied art history, uh, Kandinsky was the first abstract artist. Yeah. My, go ahead. By the way, know. jump in either yeah. of you. It's okay. 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 Julia, okay. <laughs> go ahead. Um, um, talking about why she um, was sort of off uh, art history for, for such a long time, I think one thing that's important and that um, played a major role in the beginning was that when she died, she had previously um, um, decided that her works shouldn't be shown for 20 years after her death. Uh -huh. So her, the relatives who inherited the paintings actually stored everything like she wanted him to do um, in boxes on the roof of his house. Eric, so they her were nephew. For, uh, right, that's correct. Because she didn't have any children. She inherit, inherited everything to her nephew named Eric, Eric Aslin. And he stored everything and um, just took it down in 1966, I think. That was the uh. year he retired from work um, and sort of had time to look after it. So, And this span is very important because the history of, of abstraction wasn't written when, you know, at the turn of the century, but it was written in the Cold War after the Second World War. And so when the history of abstraction was written, Hilma of Clint wasn't there. And when she reappeared, the canon was done, and nobody wanted to change the canon again. And that was also the time when um, Kandinsky, um, Halina has this beautiful document and quote in her film where Kandinsky actually claims in the 1930s when he's in exile in France, that he's the first abstract painter. He actually didn't say that in 1911 when he did sort of his abstract paintings. He was talking about spirit and how the spirit matters and how he wanted to give sort of spirit to art. But later on, he decided that sort of the most important thing was to stress the formal quality of abstraction. And it was also then when he sort of reinvented himself as the first abstract artist, and this. But did, wasn't he aware? But he had been aware of her work before. In fact, they even were in an exhibit together. Uh, yeah, uh, but not the yeah, not not it, it, yeah. You go. <laughs> they they uh, they did exhibit together in 1914. That was a big group show in Malmö, which is in the south of Sweden. It was called the Baltic Exhibition, and all the states that were close to the Baltic Sea. Um, sort of sent their representative artists. Um, and Vasily Kandinsky showed his abstract paintings there, but Hilma of Klint back then didn't manage to show her abstract works, but only showed one single um, academic work she had done. So they were in the same show, but I, I actually, 
Vasily Kandinsky never went to see that show because he couldn't because the uh, war broke out. Um, and Hilma Afkind also didn't bother to sort of um, go there to see one single academic painting by herself. So they ended up in the same exhibition, but I think they weren't aware of each other. Mm. I, I, would like to stress, I would like to stress something because I think um, everybody is, um, of course, asking why, why is it so late? And, of course, there are reasons, but even if art history or the canon had been done by some point, there have been more than one or just ten persons ignoring her and yeah. also art historians. And I think this is something very important. I mean, I don't care in the end uh, um, who likes it or doesn't like it, but I thought that art history and museums have... Uh, um, they, they have the... Um, they, they need to show everything, the whole, the whole range of artists, artists who have been there. And um, I don't think it's Hilma Afklin's fault because she said, oh, don't show it for 20 years, because actually you have to just, just imagine. You're, you're living in the 60s, you know, almost in the 70s and of the 60s, and this nephew is going to the Modern Museum in Stockholm and showing this large hippie paintings, I would call them, from Hilma of Klint to the director. And he looks at it and says, oh, no, we're not interested. So that was the mm. first obstacle, you know. <laughs> and if you see that today, you think, hmm. And he didn't even look, obviously, at the, at the date when they, were, when they were done in 1906. So that, that was of no interest. And then even later, I mean, somebody, because... I have also to say, it was Julia's article I read five years before I went to the exhibition, and she has written that art history has to be rewritten. That was the title of this brilliant article. And then I thought, oh, I have to see it. But nobody, nobody did that before. And that is something that is outrageous. Because well, why did it take more than 70 years that somebody wrote that actually down? Well, some people are you suggesting know, I, I, that it was so that she's a woman, uh, but some of her contemporaries became famous. Mary Cassatt, Bert Marceau, Katja Kolwitz, mm -hmm. uh, Suzanne Valadon, Marie Larson, Sonia Delaunay, Georgia O'Keeffe, but not Hilma. Yeah, but I think one one thing is also very important. I mean, I we we really worked hard to change art history right now, and that's what is I think happening slowly. Um, but um, for Hilma of Klint, it was not important if she's part of the history, because actually. I would say even today after I have done the film, this is, goes even beyond art. This is not just an artist who wants to change art history. That would be much too small for her, I have to, I have to say. Uh, I think this is really important in the end. But it was very important to stress that she was first because otherwise nobody would have listened. Yeah. So we're actually, actually changing. I, I, we have to change the art history books from now on. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I also agree with him. Uh, this Halina saying that she sort of decided that her work should not be shown for 20 years doesn't mean that I'm saying so it was fine to exclude her. To the contrary, I'm just explaining what happened during that period when she wasn't there. And I think it's, it's very good to bring up the question why, in contrast to many other women artists, she sort of remained unknown. And I think the, the answer to that is, is not that she was, she was not only a woman, but because her work is sort of the, the way her work is owned is sort of contrary to all the mechanisms in the art world. So her work 
never her work is not on the market. It, there are no collectors. There's no big institution behind it. There are no dealers um, who could push it. And I think if we look at the careers of artists, male and female, that you know that these are important driving forces to make someone famous and known to the public. But with her. There's no such driving force in the background. Um, there's only, you know, the family have been for a long time. Then there was a foundation, a small foundation with no yeah. capital that was sort of fighting to place her in one of the biggest sort of stakes of her art history. Because, I mean, abstraction in the West is seen as the epitome of art history. And there comes this sort of unknown woman um, who has no capital behind her, no lobby who can defend her. And she's sort of challenging this big claim that abstraction was invented by the big heroes you have just cited. And I think that's also something that really made her reception um, difficult. And we all saw in 2013, now it has changed, that the Museum of Modern Art um, publicly said that they think, that they doubt that him Afton saw her work as art and that she was sort of an isolated painter and had no connections to the networks. Thus, she shouldn't she she shouldn't be uh, she shouldn't be um, included in the history of abstraction. Now they have a loan on uh, they have a work on loan, mm. and this is, this has changed. But I think this you know like it was almost David against Goliath. Um, yeah. there, there was this sort of small unknown Swedish painter challenging one of the strongest narratives in art history. And, and I have to say, for me, as a filmmaker, I, I hadn't much to do with art history so far before I was doing the film. But when Julia also, when we, we did the interviews and I found out what are the reasons why she had been excluded for so long, this is really shocking. I think it's really shocking. <laughs> I mean, we know that world that the world is ruled by money and power, but... Um, in terms, when you look at art, for an artist, I would say it's never important that you say, uh, how can I rule the world, but they, how can I understand the world? I mean... Can, can I th throw out another yeah. possible uh, reason? Well, beyond the fact that she was yeah. in Sweden uh, and those mm -hmm. other artists were either it were in uh, countries where there was a lot more art being done, but also most of the women I mentioned had connections to other men famous yeah. male artists and she didn't in fact she she never married and uh, i don't know how much of a of a, an art scene there was in sweden uh there obviously were people making art but uh, uh the uh there aren't too many people who uh whose names are recognizable today yeah. So is that fair? But, but, but yeah, Julia can also say something to that because we found out during our research that she was, of course, traveling a lot. I mean, we don't know whom she met, whom she didn't meet. But, um, of course, yeah, she was not married to Mr. Kandinsky, but it didn't help Gabriele Münter much, you know, yeah. <laughs> being famous at her lifetime as he or something. So um, I would say, yeah. Well, let me I mean, so let me tell people who I'm talking to. Yeah. My guests yeah. are Helena Dershka, D Y R S C H K A, who has made a film called Beyond the Visible, Hilma of Clint, and to Julia Voss, who's an art historian uh, who uh, not only appears in the film but also contributed to the catalog of the the uh, major show that was at the Guggenheim Museum 
uh, last year. This is Leonard Lopez at large on WBAI, New York, 99.5 FM. Do we know why she never married? Did she ever talk about that? Yeah. yeah. Um, if I may add one information more, is I'm, I've just released a biography on her in German, um, and the biography will be uh, translated into English and will come out with Chicago University Press next year. Uh -huh. So I've done a lot of research on her life and um, her biography. So, yeah, actually, I, I think she wasn't much interested in men. Um, she had strong relations to female friends. She also lived with um, female friends. Uh, for most of her life, and she also had, at least at some point, that what the archives show, had also sexual relations with women. So I think um, marrying was not on her agenda. Well, let's go back. So she went to. She was uh, recognized uh, as uh, someone rather special when she was at the Royal Academy of Art. They even gave her a studio. Uh, her yeah. family gave her a strong interest in mathematics and botany. And uh, her early work that, uh, uh, Helena, you show in the film, are yeah. uh, realistic botanical studies. So mm -hmm. she had received a, a, a traditional art education, I assume. Yeah, and I think she was extremely, uh, 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 the, the paintings are extremely well done. I think she was very talented. She also won um, a medal for some of her works. Mm. And yeah, of course, as you mentioned, she, she got the atelier. Uh, she was graduated with honors. She graduated, yeah, right, and um, and the, the the paintings are even the I mean the the natural paintings of her are extremely I mean they're extremely wonderful and ex especially the botanical studies I think they're extraordinary and you can see how she looks probably at the world and that is also one of the reasons why I included in my film so much of the nature and that is also how Hilma of Clint started to look at things she was really started to look close at flowers and and into the woods and into the grass and everything she really wanted to get real knowledge of the of the world and of life and um i think that's where you start at, at, in nature because so so um, so yeah, she became a successful painter of portraits and landscapes and botanical drawings. Was she showing in galleries or was everything, uh, did no, people just come to her and ask her to do paint? Yeah, you, uh -huh. Julia just found it out. You can tell probably a little bit more. We, we know that she yeah. showed a lot. So, yeah, she, yeah, she was showing regularly, regularly in the 1890s. You can see, find all mm. kinds of um, newspaper articles where the, her name is um, mentioned. Um, and she seemed to be quite successful. As you mentioned, she had a studio in the center, the artistic center of Stockholm, and she stayed there until 1908. And she was a regular in all kinds of different group exhibitions during that time. And also she was very close to venues where all the sort of names we know today were shown. So just around the corner from her, she, there was a big exhibition on Edvard Munch. She probably saw... And there were all kind of modern artists that, that were being brought to uh, Stockholm and she was confronted with. Interestingly, Strindberg uh, is probably the most famous artist of, of that time in mm -hmm. Sweden. Um, mm -hmm. but, and he wrote and made art. I didn't realize that he made art and he was known uh, at the time as an artist. So you, we were talking about the women. She was a member of the Edelweiss Society and also the Five, a group of women artists who were interested in the paranormal. Did she help organize those groups? 
Yeah, she. Uh, yeah, actually, she founded one of the groups, the Five, right? So she mm. was. Yeah. I don't think and she they, founded them. She or, frequented these groups, but she started very early, so she became interested um, in supernatural phenomena already in 1879 when she was about 17 years old. And there were actually a lot of older women around her who would help her and guide her and sort of initiate her in that kind of thinking and the kind of practices that were sort of uh, executed in, during seances and so forth. So I think she came there as an apprentice, but she developed into a master. She was very interested yes. in philosophy and spiritualism, specifically mm -hmm. theosophy. Uh, now, that's uh, Helena Blavatsky, right? The, uh, the Russian right. leader, Rudolf mm -hmm. Steiner, an Austrian. Were their, was their work well known in Sweden? Was their thinking well known? And how did they influence Hilma and her, and her friends? I mean, it influenced them uh, very, very much. And I think the theosophy is probably the thing that you can see from the very beginning and to the very end. And also in her life, um, the way how she talks about life is probably very, very, very influenced by that. But I, w I have to say, everybody was, or lots, let's say, lots of artists have been uh, interested in theosophy by this time. That was the thing, let's say, at this time, um, by the end of the 19th century beginning of the 20th century. And um, it was very important for artists because I think um, even the spiritualism, that was it, it was not a contradiction if you're interested in mathematics and spiritualism and uh, quantum physics. I mean, all the, the, the kind of uh, uh, physical things were happening around Hilma of Klint at that time were absolutely groundbreaking. It was a whole world, uh, the whole world, how you... Sh how you have looked at it before was actually trembling down. And uh, that meant, I think, for many, many artists, a great freedom to, you know, to conquer really, uh, let's say, um, countries in your head where you have never been before. And I think one of the most important thing, and I think we should also talk about that, that the paintings of Hilma of Klint are so extremely special because... I, I personally think that you don't see any ego in them. And that is something uh, that I have never never seen or experienced in any other exhibition. So uh, she really, her most important works are not even signed. So she was really in a state of a medi big meditation. You have the feeling that the paintings are extremely, have a great energy, and people who are standing in front of them really feel that and can, can, yeah, can connect to that. And I think um, this is probably the secret of her success at one point, that she really, she really um, was able to live that probably, the whole philosophy and theosophy, this, this kind of ideas. And she succeeded in, by, with her paintings. Well, even before she got involved with the, some of the, the new scientific theories of the day, you mentioned quantum mechanics and relativity, she began making automatic drawings. And that was in the mid-1890s. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Seems shocking to me. Yeah. Now, so, and yeah. then she makes her first series of abstract paintings in 1906, which um, I guess uh, is tied to the theosophy. She was trying to conceptualize invisible forces. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Um, I mean, it's... I think that's very, what Halina just said is very important to understand about the time is that is the time when science discovers all these 
unseen forces. Uh, and Stockholm is the city where all the scientists get the Nobel Prize for that, right? So uh, mm-hmm. Konrad Röntgen gets the prize for X-rays in 1901. The Pierre and Marie Curie get the prize for discovering radioactivity in 1903. So she's in the center of that discussion. Um, and she realizes that science has found out that there's much beyond our senses and that art cannot stop at this point. Art cannot just be satisfied with sort of um, showing the world as we see it, but art has to go beyond uh, what we see with our sort of normal eyes and try to trace the forces the the scientists have discovered. And that's what she does. And she does it for a long time. So she starts doing automatic drawings in the 1890s in the Circle of the Five. But she had friends who were even doing that before in the 1880s. Um, and she does it for almost for over 10 years when she suddenly um, starts doing it, not with pencil on paper, but with um, oil on canvas. Mm. And large, and very would, large uh, paintings I, I, on, on paper, right? Uh, she, she did a lot of tempera on paper. Huge yeah, paintings sure. that, uh, the, I, th- I think they must have been the largest abstract paintings until Jackson Pollock or de Kooning came along. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, yeah that's, I think uh, even even Kandinsky wasn't as large as that. No, and that's you can see how brave she was. And I think to, really to understand that is also I have an also an art um, uh, not artist um, 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 historian of science in my film who's really. Um, giving an explanation to what actually happens when you when you are interested in physics and everything that came with it at this time when you realize that the world you look at at doesn't i mean it looks to us at it that it looks like that but it isn't like that then you have um then you understand that you have to invent it and that's actually what Hilma of Clint did she invented it somehow, but she also was looking behind the forms that we see. And I think this is so, this is so extraordinary because um, I think even Kandinsky, he was very much interested in doing that. That's how he came. I mean, they, they all went the same path going there. But uh, in the end, she was, I think, the bravest of all. <laughs> she just go, went there without looking or questioning or... or you know, uh, or, and probably also very important is that Hilma of Klint, I think she was not very interested about uh, uh, in the opinion of others in the end. Even if she was looking for someone like a kindred spirit like Rudolf Steiner, where she thought he must understand and I need someone to talk about that. But that's probably quite natural. But in the end, she just did it without well, asking. They, the, the, as I said, the paintings look rather sophisticated today, considering the fact that she was the yeah. first one to do them, a mix of geometric and plant life, like shapes. Uh, do you think the floral shapes are a continuation of her early interest in the botanical studies? Mm, I don't think so. I think that's something different. But she has know. circles, triangles, think? spirals, ribbon-like shapes as well, along with the floral shapes. Well, yeah. I, I, I do see a connection there because, I mean, as, as, um, Halina has just described, she was interested in studying nature, and her belief was that everything has a soul, starting from the stone, over the plant, to the mm-hmm. animal, to humans. And yeah. that what she really tried is to connect to that energy of life. Right. So um, later on, she would also return to the flowers and make a big study, study about flowers. 
But I think in, the, in that phase, what she really tried is to connect to the energy of life. And you can see not only flower shapes, um, flower shapes in it, but you can also see all kind of things that look like, like they um, connect in a sexual way, right? So you, it's almost like studying small life forms under a microscope. You could see um, how they get close, how they connect, how they inseminate and so forth. So you see all the processes that brings forward life happening in her paintings. I also so think it's interesting to look at her color, whereas Mondrian and, and Kandinsky tended to use primary colors and, and black and white. She used a lot of lavender, orange, and pink. Uh, I guess uh, that would suggest that her work was a bit more feminine than yeah, but why not? The, that, I mean, the, the this, others this, were. Yeah, but thinking that is feminine is, is just our thinking, I would say. This is how we have been brought up. I mean, that could have been different. I, I, I mean, why should it be a feminine way to think in pink? Maybe it's a completely masculine way, and we just don't know it. But um, I, I just think that's what she sees, and that is something different that what we look at. So if she looks at a flower or a tree, and what is also interested in this late uh, paintings of her, the aquarelles, what she's doing, the watercolor, uh, paintings. When she looks at flowers, it doesn't look like a flower. It's more like an energy coming out of that. Yeah. So she's really looking at the flower, and what you see is not a flower, but you see something that you could, I don't know, uh, you could, actually you can't describe it. You just have to see it, but that's probably what she saw. And we don't know. I mean, everybody's looking to, through his own eyes into this world, and I think this is so very important um, to to that you realize that and probably other people can see that as well as she did you know you if you really look at something you probably see something else or you close your eyes and you see the real form i mean this is something that's that those are all the options Hilma Asklund left open you know for her and that's why she could go so very far. And I also would like to stress that some of her paintings, also the watercolors, are sometimes really funny. And she really has a good humor sometimes in her paintings. So there's a lot, lot more to discover in the next years. Did she try to I show to her abstract work in the galleries that had shown her realistic work? Um, actually, we have evidence that she tried to show her abstract works. She mm -hmm. didn't want to show her abstract works in a gallery because mm -hmm. they were not for sale. She wanted them to stay together. But what she did in 1913 was um, to participate in group shows organized by the Theosophical Society. And she would also look for venues where she could show her work without being forced to sell them. Um, so she went to Amsterdam and connected with the spiritual and also artistic circles there in order to find a, a venue. She went to Dornach, Switzerland, to uh, Rudolf Steiner in order to persuade him to show her work in the Goetheanum in Dornach. She even went to London um, right, right. to show her work there in 1928. So there she succeeded. But actually sort of the gallery system was not of interest for her during lifetime because she didn't want to produce work that is up for sale. She wanted to produce her work for um, a venue where it could stay and people could look at it and, and look at the entire series. I mean, the Paintings for the Temple is a series of 193 paintings. Mm -hmm. So, and she wanted that to stay together. So the idea of selling it through a gallery wasn't sort of something she wanted. 
Did yeah, she I continue to produce her more traditional work to, just to, to make a living? She, she did, yeah, she did. every yeah, now and then. Mm. Um, so she did portraits in 1910 of a physicist and a linguist. Um, and there are also letters where she tries to get commissions, but she wasn't, um, uh, she wasn't very successful in that. And I think also that um, she tried to, made a, to you know, enhance her living, um, or to, to, yeah, to do a living. Um, but so it was difficult for her not to have any income anymore. Mm. Um, but sort of her heart really was up for her new kind of painting style. So yeah. every now and then she would accept a portrait, but that's not what she wanted to do. But I think that's quite natural as far when you have gone so far with your art, with your thinking, looking at this world, then it's hard to go back. But um, that's how you, but you live in this, in this world, so she had to cope with that. But I think it's really important. I think we really should also talk about that. Um, this is a work, this is an artist who was not, her first aim was not to sell it. This was nothing. She didn't want to play the same rules that everybody else played. This is a work that shouldn't play in the same league as the others. It's even, I would say, it's even beyond that. And this is so important because right now all the museums, and we know the, the ex extremely successful Guggenheim show that was absolutely fabulous, the show in in. And Europe was also very, very successful with over one million people visiting um, this exhibition. And, um, and even now in the MoMA, there's one hanging. But in the end, I have to say, those museums have also ignored her for years. And now, uh, and this comes with this money question, I ask myself, why is the MoMA, for example, showing one of her paintings? Um, because they can't, they can't not show her? Or, I mean, nobody really, I, 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 as far, I mean, I haven't heard anything about that, but, but I think now comes something like the success and everybody wants to take part of that, which is fine in the end, but I think we should have a discuss, discussion about that because um, does she belong to one museum? Should she have something for her own? Um, and is it okay just to participate or, I mean, for example, I would be very interested if the MoMA is just interested in showing Hilma of Clint because everybody's showing her or if they really have changed their mind um, about, <laughs> about her work. Because well, the work asked, is very good, so it's not like they're embarrassing they themselves. So. They, they didn't think so. Five years ago, I wrote, I wrote an email to the MoMA and I asked them if they would give me an interview. And uh, they said no. They said they are not interested and they don't think this is really art. And if we somebody have to... says that, that's fine. But, uh, but why, are they not, uh, why are they not saying now something? Have they changed their mind or not or whatever? Because I think this is really important. I personally hope that nothing will ever be sold to anyone because that is the main, the main point of this work. Well, we've got to take a little break and come back to that thought. Uh, this is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM.
a bit of irony there. Pictures at an exhibition. Uh, we're talking about an artist yeah. who, uh, who uh, did her first abstract paintings in 1906, five years before Kandinsky, and yet uh, hardly ever got an exhibition. Now there's a film about her called Beyond the Visible, Hilma of Klimt, uh, and not to be confused with Klimt. Uh, it is uh, directed by Helena Dershka, and she uh, is with us today along with Julia Voss, who appears in the film and uh, also contributed to the catalog of the, the Guggenheim Show. Before we go on with the story, Helena, uh, originally the plan was for this to be shown in theaters. Uh, of course, that's yeah. all changed right now. So what's happening now? How can people see the film? Well, um, yeah, first of all, I'm very happy that we're, we're still uh, starting. And, um, yeah, we have now a virtual theatrical release. That's what it's called now. It's very new for me, and I also think for my um, distributed Zeitgeist films. But um, I, the plan is, is like that. You can go to your theater nearby and still buy a ticket there, even if you're at home. And you can do that on a web, uh, on a web page that is called uh, Kino Marquee and uh, kinomarquee.com. And, um, uh, and there you can connect with your cinema nearby and they will stream the film for... And BAM, for, of course, in, in New York, in Brooklyn. And BAM, Brooklyn of course. Academy. I mean, they, they will start that on Friday, right. As far as I know, there, uh, there are more than 30 cinemas right now who, uh, around the, in, the, in the whole country who will take part of this virtual theatrical release. So I, think, I really hope it will come to many, many cities. I mean, I would have loved to come to New York, of course, and uh, talk <laughs> uh, about the film by myself, but, but at least this is now happening, and I hope it uh, really brings joy now into the living rooms to people. Well, um, we were planning on having you in our yeah. studio, but then again, we're not in the yeah. studio right now. So... <laughs> But still, it's working. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I really hope it works out, and I really hope that the people will watch the film anyway, and probably will have also um, the, 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 the option even later when someday we will get our freedom back that, um, <laughs> that the film starts again in cinemas or whatever. Because actually, of course, as a filmmaker, I really love to see my film on screen, on a big screen in the cinema. That's what I made it for. And most importantly, so I recommend if people watch it at home, hopefully they have a large screen or they can probably beam it somewhere. <laughs> because um, the thing is, I have a lot of details in my film. I'm, I'm filming, the, the, as you mentioned, the, the, the paintings are large, extremely large. Some of them are extremely large. 10 feet by 9 close, feet. Yeah, you have to say the feet because I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and um, um, and, but if you go, so I filmed very little details of these large paintings, and then you see, you can see them very, very large and, uh, on, a, on, a, uh, on the screen, but in real life, they're just a little, tiny little detail. And this is also, um, in the whole painting, and this is also something that is um, very important because the, the, micro, the macrocosmos is, is one of the main themes in Hilma of Clint's work. So you can really discover a lot of things in the details, but then if you look at this at the whole painting, you see something completely different. And um, yeah, so I hope um, that uh, people will discover that. But anyway, well, after she not. after she kind of dropped out of the regular art scene, didn't she build a studio on the Swedish island of Munso? 
um, and live there. Did she live there until she died at the age of 82? Uh, she, yeah. You go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, she, she, she kept the studio uh, on Münze mm -hmm. until she died in 1944. Um, but she couldn't stay there during winter because it was too cold. So she mm -hmm. moved um, to the south of Sweden at some point. And she lived, first she lived in Stockholm, then she moved to Helsingborg, which is at the uh, southwest coast, and then um, to Lund. Um, and, and later on, she moved back to Stockholm. But yes, you're right, she had this beautiful studio in Munze, but in, because it was not meant to be for the winters, she had to leave in the winter. So did she continue I mean, to paint abstract paintings throughout her life? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, she did, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, what she does is it's sort of when she started doing what she did in 1906, it was abstraction mixed also with something else. So she always, what's I think very special for her work is that she always worked in series. So, so she would stop producing single artworks in 19, 1906 and would always do series. So the series would be like, 24 pictures or 16 pictures or eight pictures, but they would never be single works. And what you can see is that she transforms from figurative to abstraction because that's the way from, um, uh, from the material to the spiritual. So you would find figurative works in between, but they're always on the move to something else and to abstraction. And she kept doing that until the 1940s. But she, what she did also did is she, she switched technique. Um, from the 1920s onwards, what we have is watercolors. Um, and I think this had, on the one hand, it had to do with going to um, Switzerland and to Dornach, where Rudolf Steiner was. But on the other hand, it also had to do with, um, do you say rheuma? Or rheum, uh, the illness that affects your bones? Rheumatic illness? Is that something you have as a... Rheumatism, um, you mean? Rheumatism, rheumatism yeah. Rheumatism, yeah. right. Um, and that kept her from doing large-scale oil painting later on and sort of made uh, the watercolor much more easy for her. Now, you said she uh, left instructions that her abstract paintings couldn't be shown until 20 years after her death, which would have been 1964. What mm -hmm. plan did she have? Did she not want them to be shown, or did she hope that a museum would be built for them at some point? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I think the museum is, is, is uh, yeah, was of of course a big question. But I think you have to also to realize one thing. It was '44. This war was the war was still going on, mm -hmm. and nobody was really interested in keeping care, taking care of the paintings. So uh, she gave it to her nephew. But I think I always ask myself, what would what, what I have done in this case? I mean, if you are not sure that the, pay, that the people around you are really able to understand what you have built or you, what you have done, then you probably hope that later generations might be able to do that. Well, I would have thought and, that the surrealists looking at her work would have felt that she was a kindred spirit, somebody like Miro. Yeah, of course. Many, I think, would have thought that. If, uh, yeah. Um, but, um, but as far as we know, we don't know if they have seen it. I mean, so if they haven't seen it, so they they, they couldn't say anything about it. And um, 
And of course, and that's the reason when you look at Hilmar Flint's paintings, you think, oh, I've seen that already. And you uh, you think, oh, no, that's Paul Klee. And oh, no, uh-huh. that is probably yes. just, uh, uh, you know, I mean, I, I do these comparisons in my film. because <laughs> That's what you think. You look at them and you think, oh, I've seen that, yeah, at Jean Miro's paintings. And I think, yeah, they would have, they have, would have been probably quite interested in each other uh, talking, and uh, probably also Kandinsky. Um, we don't mm-hmm. know. We How did you go about researching that. the film? Because uh, mm-hmm. you include interviews with her, her nephew's widow and, and son. Right. Uh, have, have they taken over the task of getting her work out into the world? Yeah, I mean, um, uh, right, uh, Johann of Klint, uh, the grandnephew, he was actually, uh, I mean, his father was, was the nephew, and so he really saw his father working hard trying to find a place for Hilma of Klint, and he also couldn't succeed. And Johann of Klint, when I started doing the research of the film, Johann of Klint was the, the leader of the foundation, and he really, really supported me a lot. You know, he really helped a lot in, in many ways, and really really tried to help to make her visible and to and he really hoped that people would do understand the the grandeur of her work and um but that was a hard way and it was really just due to this big exhibition at the at the Stockholm Museum the Moderna Museet uh, when people started to get interested and uh, but before that it was really I would say it was a tough time because, but I think it's really, this is really some of the probably miracles that everything stayed together. It's absolutely wonderful that you have a work that stayed together. And that is the reason why it shouldn't be torn apart now. And especially not for some, um, yeah, for some reason as money, uh, because it is important that you see the series all together. And, um, and and that's that that why that's why it was worth it waiting for it probably and we're, and and all the work the family has done so far. Mm. We're talking about Hilma of Clint uh, with Helena Dirschka, filmmaker. Uh, her film Beyond the Visible, Hilma of Clint, and Julia Voss, uh, art historian. Uh, Julia, the, the the exhibit at the Stockholm Museum really changed everything. Uh, this I guess is. Uh, uh, that that was the the show that led to the Guggenheim show. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. the 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 Stockholm exhibition I think was the game changer because suddenly you had a big institution, the Moderna Museet, um, that would put up a show calling it Hilma Afton, Pioneer of Abstraction. So they, mm-hmm. Daniel Dunbaum and Iris Müller Westermann, the curator of the show, they both fought for placing her into the canon, and then. This show went on tour in Europe, Europe, and the debate started. And it took some years, but then the Guggenheim uh, was uh, brave enough to take up um, the show or to the, curate their own show. And actually, I mean, you asked about, and I think that's an important question, what she intended with her work. And I mean, the, the kind of the irony of, in the history of abstraction is that Hilma Afkind intended to show her work in a spiral-shaped mm-hmm. temple. Yeah. And that's exactly what the Guggenheim Museum is. And Tracy Bashkoff, the curator of the fantastic Guggenheim show, um, pointed that out in the, ta- in the catalog and made that her starting point, saying, look, Hilla von Riebe, the founder, together with um, Guggenheim, the founder of the Guggenheim, the founding director of the Guggenheim Museum, um, talks about a spiral-shaped building, a temple in the 18- 1930s. So does Hilma Afklind. And now we put her, her work in a spiral-shaped page. 
a spiral shape. Yeah. Well, the, the, the show at the Guggenheim was called... The Guggenheim Museum. The Guggenheim show was called Hilma af Klint, Paintings for the Future, which is kind of amusing. Uh, the centerpiece yeah. was a group of very large paintings called the 10 Largest. Uh, what was yeah. the concept of that series? Uh, we're talking about paintings, as I mentioned earlier, that 10 by 9 feet. I, I would think that they were bigger than paintings by other abstract artists of the early 20th century. Yeah, I mean... This is pro yeah. This is the most impressive impressive series. Not just because the paintings are so extremely large, but I think because of what you see, um, it is probably the attempt um, to show life in full from the very beginning. So the first two, I mean, they're called the series. They're called the first two paintings of the series are called Childhood, and then it's going to adulthood and also to the old age, and um, um, so you can really encounter probably yourself in those paintings or something that is uh, beyond our lives. And, and that is also, I think this is the strength that's coming. It's, they're really, really powerful. And the strength that is coming out of those paintings is really something, you almost can grasp it when you're in front of them. And um, this was very interesting at the Guggenheim exhibition when people were standing in front of that, those paintings. Sometimes you saw people just, um, you know, talking to other people whom they have never met, like, oh, have you seen something like that before? It was absolutely wonderful to see how much joy is coming out from that. And even if you don't find words for that, and that is the reason why Hilma Afton painted, because I think there are no words for that, but in the end you're standing there and you're just um, experiencing, yeah, a pure joy and um, also a relief that probably it does make, make sense to be here on this planet. Helena, in the film, you <laughs> include enactments of her painting. Why did you feel it was important yeah. to show her technique? Um, okay, first of all, there was a very practical reason, of course, because when I started the film, I had exactly, I think it were three photographs of Helma Afklind when I started the film. And I thought I have to show also um, how sh I mean, I I'm talking about a painter, and what I l always liked about painting is, I mean, how do you, what do you do with the colors, and how do you use, what do you need, water and 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 um, uh, pigments, and what else did she need? I, so I really wanted to understand that, and I really tried to do it in a in a way that you don't feel disturbed. You know, it shouldn't disturb her paintings that you think, oh, what what is she painting? That you think, oh God, that doesn't look that doesn't look at like her her real paintings, like Hilma Afflin's real paintings. So I really tried to to be very um, sensitive in a way to show that. But I think it is really important because um, that you really get a little glimpse into. Um, uh, what it meant to do even so so large paintings. She was a very small woman, as far as we know. And uh, so she really, she didn't care. So she really made huge paintings. And she needed, you know, you need the whole, the whole room for that. No one else can be in a room when you paint something like that. And um, I, I thought this is important to see. To, to to see and and it's yeah and I, it it really was wonderful to to experience that by myself how much work that had. but even right. one painting we just did one but it's extremely and, uh, and yeah. also 
I think well, we're, we're almost out of time, so we have to make this quick. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think these reenactments are absolutely fabulous. And one thing um, Halina also shows is that she paint, she had to paint these large paintings, lying them on the floor. So she walks over her paintings just as Pollock does, sort of uh, decades mm -hmm. later. And that's a, a glorious. Um, <laughs> no. Now we uh, mentioned yeah, earlier that it's. Scene. It, we mentioned earlier that it's being shown in a virtual theatrical release, and Hilma was very interested in in the uh, the latest scientific discoveries. Do you think that she would mm -hmm. approve of a film about her being shown in the the latest digital format? <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> Thing I'm always asking myself because actually uh, Julia found out uh, that Hilma Flint, we know from one little, 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 little note in her notebooks that she went to the cinema and that was something very new coming up at that time in her time. So she will, because I always ask myself, has she been interested in the new uh, discoveries and techniques? And she was, obviously. And I think, um, yeah, I think she would be probably more enthusiastic than me. But about well, we have. Like that. Uh, we ha we have to I leave think... it there, unfortunately. I'm yeah. so sorry. But my great oh, thanks to both of you, Julia Voss, art historian, and Helena Dierschka, the director of Beyond the Visible, Hilma of Clint. And uh, it's been a real pleasure talking about her. And uh, I hope that uh, a lot of people will see the film because it's really fabulous. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, you should do it. Thank you. <laughs> And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to Barbara Kahn, who produced this segment. And don't forget, you can access past shows streaming on demand on WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And please follow our show pages on Facebook and Twitter and visit our website, lendedlocatedlarge.com, where you can find links to all of our past shows. We are now entering our third week of shows with me broadcasting from my home on a hastily thrown together home studio that we put together as the coronavirus uh, pandemic was closing in. We hope that you'll bear with the technical limitations that come with such a setup, but I believe that now more than ever, we need the kind of escape that a show like ours aims to provide. Anyway, I know I do. So join us tomorrow when Kevin Peter Hand will discuss his new book, Alien Oceans, The Search for Life in the Depths of Space. We'll see you then.